Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're looking primarily at verses 14 through 22, so that'll be our text today. I, I still remember very vividly the very first supper I was invited to uh, in, when I entered the ministry. Uh, this was before I was married, and uh, we were we get married in September. I started the work there uh, June 1st in Peoria, East Peoria. I remember I was invited to the pastor's house, and there were several other people there. They wanted me to, to meet some folks from the church and so forth, and so there's quite a few people. They had a large table there, and, and, then it, and to the side of the table, or on the end of the table, were a couple cards ta tables as well, uh, where people could sit. So I, when I got there, and we started getting assigned seating, I found out that uh, all the adults were at the big table, and I was at the card table with the children. And I knew immediately my status uh, at the church. Uh, at that point, I was not particularly important uh, to them. And uh, I thought of that little illustration as I thought about this passage today. The, the verses we're looking at today uh, don't get much attention. They're very easy to uh, just skip through very quickly and not pay attention to them and ignore them. Because the first 13 verses are pretty powerful verses, especially 12 and 13. You recall last week as we looked at those verses that... I'll just, I'll just read them. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. With the temptation, will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Powerful verses memorized by most of us and, and definitely loved. And then the verses that follow this also are some, some wonderful verses as well. Very prominent verses, especially toward the end. In verse 31, where it says, whatever you do, no matter what you're doing, eating or drinking or whatever, do all to the glory of God. So these are passages we are familiar with, and we appreciate and we like. Uh, the passage we're looking at today is uh, largely ignored because it's difficult. It's a difficult passage. I'll admit that right up front. You'll have to stay with me today to follow along with the great a truth that God wants to teach us here. But as we look at these verses together, we actually find that this is the heart of the passage. The first 13 verses are, are, are being applied in the text we'll look at today. And the rest of the chapter is, an, is actually a clarification of what we'll look at today. So this is really the central piece, even though I think it's easy for us to, to miss that and to, to neglect that. As we look at the passage today, uh, we're looking at a situation very different than ours. Uh, we're going to be wrapped around the issue of idol worship. And uh, that we don't deal with that directly like they did in those days. But, but the issues involved, as well as the principles that we draw, are, are identical to what was going on in the first century. And so we're going to look at some things today. What, what we saw last time is that it's very easy for us to get arrogant and to think that we cannot stumble like the Jews did. Paul, Paul laid out in the first uh, 11 verses the great privileges that Israel had had in the Old Testament and how those privileges were rejected by the people of Israel. And as a result of that, they fell in numerous ways and at numerous times. And he tells us, let us not be like that. Let us not think we can't fall. And, and here's what we can do in the area of temptation. So that was all laid out uh, last time. And so he says, if you're going to be able to do that, you're going to be able to have victory in the face of these temptations, uh, there are certain things that you need to do. And that's where he's going at uh, taking us right now in this passage. And so on the negative side, do you want to be able to avoid the pitfalls that will face you in life? 
and that will trip want, that want to trip you up and destroy you. And on the positive side, do you want to have a life that, that is vibrant and, and pure and, and glorious in Christ? Uh, that's where he's leading us. So as he does that, we're going to look at, uh, at a number of things together. First of all, if we want to have the kind of life God wants us to have, then we're going to have to have the determination to flee from the substitutes for God. We need to be determined that we're going to flee from those substitutes. One of the means of escaping from temptation that he mentions in verse 13 is fleeing. Now look at these verses 14 and 15 with me. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Let's start with the word idolatry. Uh, idolatry basically, in its broadest sense, is anything that replaces God in your life. So we're not talking necessarily about statues and, and idols as they were facing in that time. Anything that becomes a substitute for Jesus Christ in your life is an idol. And so he talks about that here. And you know what? Most people, almost nobody actually, almost no Christian ever wakes up one day and says, I think I will, I will walk away from God. That just almost never happens. Uh, but over time, that can happen in many lives. Someone has said it this way, a, a flat tire in the Christian life is never a blowout. It's always a slow leak. Look at your life with that. And that's what he's talking about. He's warning us against such things. And he tells us here that, uh, that we're to flee from idolatry. That doesn't sound very courageous, does it? Run away. <laughs> flee. Um, well, can't I just stand there and fight with the power of God and, and defeat that temptation? Well, maybe. Uh, where, where's, where's the strength and the grace of God to endure? Is that there? It is. But scripture will often tell us our best defense is to flee from certain temptations. And specifically, there are four temptations that the New Testament tells us to flee from. And I want to give those to you right here. These are some of the temptations that if you stay toe-to-toe -to -toe fighting these things, you most likely will ultimately fail. And the first one, as we see here, is idolatry, and that is replacing the Lord with, with different substitutes. But go back a couple pages to chapter 6, verse 18, and the second, second one we'll mention is immorality. 6.18 says, flee immorality. Every other sin that is, a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Flee immorality. How many Christians have fallen, even, even prominent Christians in recent times, because they didn't just simply obey that very simple instruction that get out of there, flee from these things, get away. So flee from immorality is another one. Over in the Timothys, we find a couple more. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. We have a second one, and that is the love of, our third one, that's the love of money. 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 and verse 11. He says, for the, root, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. So read that carefully. It's not the only root, but it is a root of all sorts of evil. And he says, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue uh, righteousness and so forth and godliness. Flee from the love of money. Now it, it, you don't have to be a very good observer 
to notice how powerful money is in our world, right? People will do almost anything, almost anything for money. They will leave family and friends. They will, they will undermine their own spiritual life. They will harm other people. They will, they will make the major decisions of their life all wrapped around money and the pursuit of money rather than the pursuit of the things that God gives us here. And, the, and, and the, the chasing after money becomes more important to us than pursuing righteousness and godliness that he mentions in the next verse, even for Christians. And so the power of money is, cannot be overestimated. And the love of money is, every, every, in every instance, destructive. And so don't think you're immune to that. That doesn't mean we don't like money, we don't use money, we don't need money. That means we don't love money. And if we love money, it will, write it down, underline it, color it in red, mark it with a highlighter, it will ultimately destroy you. Christian or non-Christian, flee. Flee from those temptations. Get away from the love of money. And then go over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, and he talks now about what he calls youthful lust. 2.22 of 2 Timothy, he says this, Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace and so forth. The context here is not morality. Now we've already seen that in 1 Timothy, about, or in 1 Corinthians 6. The context here is, is tricky, false doctrines and teachings. Faddish ideas. That, uh, that, that tend especially to grab the youth, youthful people who want to get involved with these things and argue these things and debate these things and these things begin to erode us away from the things of Christ. And he said instead of being all wrapped up in these faddish ideas and these false teachings, uh, you get it wrapped up in faith and righteousness and godliness. Flee from these youthful lusts. So there's four things outlined as we go back to our passage specifically in the New Testament that we're told to flee from. These are simple illustrations, simple to commands, nothing complicated about them at all. It really aggravates me when people say, I can't understand the Bible. Well, there's parts of the heart, which is why I have a job. You know, I, I get to explain the hard parts, right? And we're going to do that in a moment. There is nothing hard about those four commands. Those are straightforward, right from God. Flee these things. If you do not, you risk destruction on a spiritual level in your life. Very, very clear, right? So as we go back to our passage of Scripture, we see why Paul is motivated to say this. I want you to see this, because once again, it's very subtle. But he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Why is Paul motivated to say these things? Because he loves them. My beloved. My loved ones. Uh, from a heart of love, he says these things to these people. And that should be our motivation when we have to say hard things as well. What, what loving parent, when they said to a child, a little, little toddler just learning to get around, don't touch a hot stove. Why do you say that? Because you love that little child. When the child gets a little older and starts uh, surfing the internet and you put the brakes on there and you put on some safeguards and you say, well, be careful with the internet. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. Why do you do that? Because you don't love them or because you do love them? And when they get a little older than that and they start running around with different groups and you, you put the brakes on some of that and say, you cannot run with those kids. Why do you do that? Because you want their life to be miserable? 
No, because you love them. So why does Paul say flee these things? Because he loved them. Why, why do we as a church point out these types of things? Because we love you and you love one another. And so he says, my beloved, flee from these adulteries, or from idolatry, these other sins. And then he says something in verse 15 that I do not believe is tongue in cheek. I do not believe he is being sarcastic. I think he's being honest. He says here, look, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Remember back in chapter 2, he says, you as a Christian have the mind of Christ. That means now we have the capacity to think like Jesus Christ. And therefore we can have the wisdom of God. And so when he says, I speak to wise men, he says, look, you're, you are, you're smart. You're, you're wise. You can reason these things out. Reason with me. Come, let us to come together and reason with these things. Am I not right in what I'm saying to you? Think it through. Now, if you did that, if you sat down and reasoned, what might you come up with this afternoon? Well, for one thing, you might say, I want to avoid that which is questionable. I, I, if I'm going to follow this passage of Scripture, I'm not going to get as close as I possibly can to sin. I'm going to back off from that and not see how far I can push the envelope. I'm going to stay from the questionable. Because, you know, that which right now is questionable soon becomes unquestionable, and ultimately it becomes unmentionable. And you'll do the things that you never thought you would ever do because you kept getting closer and closer to that fire. I read recently that at, at the beginning of World War II, there was a, about an eight-month time period that is known by historians as the, the Phony War. And that was in 1939, when uh, after Germany started uh, making some rumblings and doing some, some bad, aggressive things. In 1939, September the 3rd, the war was declared uh, by England against Germany. But for eight months, the Germans stayed on their side of the line, most, more or less, and the French and the Allies stayed on their side of the line, and very little happened. Some skirmishes and stuff, but very little happened. So much so that for eight months, finally some politicians said, this is a phony war. This isn't a real war. This is just a lot of saber rattling. It's nothing to it. It's a phony war. And then, eight months later, in the May 10th of 1940, Germany struck with lightning speed and rolled over all of Europe. What was going on? While the French and the Allies got complacent, the Germans were building up forces and almost took over the world. Don't get complacent. Don't think, I've got this. I'm okay. Don't mess around with the questionable because that will one day come back on you. And now, here's something else you might think about. Avoid the occasions of temptations that you know you're weak with. Those that are weak for you or are tempting to you. If we think of uh, you know, ancient times, all the major cities had walls built around them, right? And if there was a breach in the wall that the enemy could come into and destroy the people inside, that would be a bad thing, wouldn't it? And if that happened once, wouldn't you think the people in the city would fix that breach so that doesn't happen again? How foolish it would be to continue to let the enemy come through the same breach in the wall and destroy the people on the inside. 
Now let's apply that here. If you know you're tempted with something in particular, if you know your weakness, maybe it's physical uh, issues, maybe it's immorality, maybe it's idolatry, maybe, maybe it's money, maybe it's weird doctrines, the ones that Paul's mentioned. If you knew that was true in your life, why wouldn't you shore up the breach? Why, why wouldn't you say, look, this is where I'm weak. I will remove myself from that. I will shore up that area of my life so that I am not destroyed by those things. Those are some of the things that I think Paul is saying. Look, you're wise people. Judge what I say. Think about it. Understand it. So if we're going to be able to um, withstand the temptations that we are going to be bombarded by, if we're going to be able to move on to the life God wants us to have, we need to be determined to flee from the substitutes for God. Secondly, we need to re be re refuse to compromise. Refuse to compromise, starting with verse 16. And as he looks, as we move to verse 16, uh, we're, we're looking at one of the strongest arguments in the Christian life related to compromising. People tend to compromise. Most Christians don't just walk out and say, I think I'll do an awful thing. But they are prone to compromising. And so Paul wants to talk about that here at this point in time. So in verse 16, as we pick it up, he uses four different or three different arguments to warn us against compromising. Number one, or to help us to, get, to guard against it. Take seriously your fellowship with Christ. Now, that seems like something I shouldn't even have to say, right? But take seriously your fellowship with Christ. Look at verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing with which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul uh, is going to illustrate the believer's fellowship with Christ with the Lord's Supper. And this is where it's getting somewhat complicated. For many Christians, the Lord's Supper is a ritual, something you do occasionally when you come to church. Uh, it's uh, something you, it's okay to do, but it doesn't really impact your life very much, right? And that's the case of, of many people. But Paul says, look, I want you to point, look at the supper that the Lord has given us. And by the way, there's only two places in all the writings of Paul where he talks about the Lord's Supper. This one, this chapter, and chapter 11. So it's very, very important that we see what he is saying here at this time. He is saying the Lord's Supper symbolizes our communion with Christ. Look at some of the words. Is not the cup of blessing with which we bless. Let's stop there. The word bless is the word that we get our word eulogy. Or to eulogize. It means to speak well of. And he says this cup of blessing, speaking of the uh, cup of the communion service, which, which we bless, which we speak well of in the sharing of the body of Christ. Now look at the word sharing. That's the Greek word koinia, which means communion, which is why we often call the Lord's Supper communion. It, it means to share. It means to fellowship. We put those together, and what we're seeing here is that when, when we come together over the Lord's Supper, it is symbolizing for us the very essence of the Christian life. The very heart of the Christian life. And he's using the Lord's Supper as an illustration of that. 
So, so look at this. What, what, what do we partake in? What do we share when we come together over the Lord's Supper that symbolizes what we share with one another all the time? Number one, the blood of Christ. He says, Is not the cup of the blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? A fellowshipping in the blood of Christ. A sharing together over the blood of Christ. In other words, what he's saying here is that all of us who know Christ are saved on the same basis. The blood of Jesus Christ that has redeemed us from sin. And we all share that. We all have that in common. No matter where we are in our own Christian walk. And so we share that together. And he says when we take the Lord's Supper, that symbolizes that sharing of the blood of Christ, that fellowship over the blood of Christ. We're united in the truth that we share together. Some of you know Harry Ironside. He was a famous uh, pastor, teacher, commentator of, of another generation. And his books are still prominent today. Uh, he's, he told a story of a time when, before cars were prominent, and he was visiting a, a native group of people, I think in America, and they were on a, in a wagon out in a prairie. And there was, a, there was just flat as can be. And they looked ahead and they saw a massive storm coming their way. Lightning, thunder, huge rain, they could tell it was coming. And that uh, was not what uh, Ironside wanted to be in. And the, uh, one of the, one of the uh, people with him and that group of, of natives that was with him said, I think we can make it to the rock if we hurry. And so they started galloping the horses to this rock. And so they saw up ahead this gigantic rock just out of the middle of nowhere. And they came to it just as the rain started to pour. They came to the rock and there was an entryway to a very large cave right there on the side of the rock. And they ran their horses and themselves into that particular rock area. And after they settled down a little bit, as the rain was pouring, the lightning was coming, one of the men there, one of the Christian men, started singing that classic hymn, The Rock of Ages. And as he sang that song, he sang, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And Ironside said that song never meant so much to him in his whole life than that moment when he recognized that they could be out there being destroyed by lightning or at least basically drowned by rain and they're in this cleft of the rock that protected them from that problem. And that's exactly what what he's talking about here with Jesus. His blood is that which is the cleft in the rock. It's that which protects all of us from the wrath of God and the power of sin. So we share that. The second thing we share is the body of Christ. He says, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. And so the bread itself as well is a reminder that we are part of the body of Christ. So all believers are part of the same body. It's not just a unity with Christ himself. It's also a unity with all those that know Christ. And so it's a sharing with one another in that way. The body ministers in that regard. I I think there's a possibility here that Paul is throwing this stuff out now because when he comes to chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's going to get very detailed on a major problem at the church, which is as a body of Christ, they were not functioning well. They were at war on all sorts of issues because of one central reason, they were selfish. It was all about them. It was not about 
the Lord Jesus or about others. They all wanted to be the big cocks, the, the big wheels. I've got right here in my pocket today a, a pocket watch somebody gave me. And uh, if this is a real pocket watch, not one of those digital thingies. It's got wheels inside. You know, move around and so forth. What if a little wheel in there said, I want to be a big wheel. And because I, I am not a big wheel, I'm going to quit working. And as a result of that, the watch stops. By the way, this is stopped. So I've got a little wheel in there that wants to be a big wheel. What happens when everybody wants to be a big wheel? Progress stops. That's exactly what he's going to talk about in chapters 12 to 14. And he's already laying it out here now. Look, we're part of the body of Christ. We share together under Jesus Christ. We're united with him. Now having said all of that, that's his first argument. You need to take seriously the fellowship we have in Christ. The second argument he gives us is we need to recognize the tragedy of compromise. Do we recognize the tragedy of compromise? In verse 18, he says this, Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that the idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Many people do not recognize what they're doing when they're compromising their commitment to Christ. So Paul wants to make it very clear. And he returns once again to an illustration of Israel. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, he gave us a negative illustration. And he shows us how they failed. But now he gives us a positive illustration. And he talks about what they did in the Old Testament. So in verse 18, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, shirts, and the altar. That is, when the Jews went before the altars and the sacrificial uh, opportunities in the Old Testament, uh, they were identifying with God. They were sharing with God. And now, as he turns to the Lord's Supper, at, just before this, when we come together as a body of Christ and the Lord's Supper, we are sharing all around Christ, we are identifying with Christ. As the Old Testament identified with God at the sacrifices, so we identify with Christ at the Lord's table. So far, so good. Then he says in verse 19, what do I mean then? Is a thing sacrificed to an idol anything, or is an idol anything? Now for those that are pretty astute in Scripture, you might remember that chapter 8, verse 4, said something that seems to be contradictory. So run back there for a page or two. Chapter 8, verse 4. Paul had already kind of approached this subject before about this idol worship and so forth. And he said in 8.4, Therefore, concerning eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there's no such thing as an idol in the world and, there's, and that there is no God but one. So in chapter 8, verse 4, he says there are no idols. Right? Then he comes back over here to chapter 10. He's going to talk about idols. So what's the difference? It's not a contradiction. Let me explain. In chapter 8, he was talking about eating meat sacrificed to the idols. He says the idols are nothing. Eat the meat if you want to. Don't eat the meat, however, if it would compromise your testimony or if it would cause somebody else to stumble. That was his teaching there. He comes to chapter 10, and he's going further. He's not talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He's talking about going into the temples of the idols. 
and eating there with them. And he says, we must not do that. Why? It's his illustration. Because you're identifying now with the idols. As Israel identified with God, as we identify with Christ, to go into the temples of these idols is to identify with the idols. Now it gets more sinister than that because now he says when you do that, there's something you don't realize. Verse not 20, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be sharers in demons. I do not want you to participate to fellowship with demons. Stay out of their temples because you're identifying with demons. That's his point here. And apparently they were doing that. Now a question we might ask is why would anybody, even unsaved people, want to be involved with, the, with demonic beings, with evil spirits? Why would they want to do that? Well, let me give you a couple reasons. Number one is that most people don't consider demons evil. We have, uh, we have really made demons very benign in our society. Everywhere from the Walt Disney movies to the Harry Potters to the, to the Chronicles of Narnia on, to, the tri- to the trilogies of, of Tolkien, all the way up and down the line, however you think about those things. The fact is that those, when we come out of those things, demons don't look all that bad most of the time. Socrates himself... 500 years before this, uh, believed that his whole life was led by a demon. In the literature about him, he called it an oracle. Oracles sound a whole lot nicer than demons, don't they? It's the same Greek word. His life, he said he was directed and guided by a demon. And that demon told him, never fear dying, because when you die, you're going to go to a better place. Well, Socrates died, he didn't go to a better place. The demon deceived probably the smartest man that ever lived. Demons are, uh, most people I think are pretty benign and they're not too concerned about them. Now let's switch back over to scripture. What does scripture say about demons? Scripture says demons are, are the fallen angels that fell with Satan when he rebelled against God. And they became evil spirits. When we think about demons, our minds may immediately go to the, 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 the movies and stuff I just mentioned. Or it may go to demon possession or voodooism or witchcraft or shamanism somewhere else. But we don't take it particularly very seriously. But I want to take you over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to show you the real methodology of demons. Which is primarily not demon possession, witchcraft and all those kinds of things that we see today. It's deception. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times, Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. What is the primary thrust of the demonic world today? Deception and false teaching. And they are busy with that. I want to take you to another passage, James chapter 3, verse 15. If you want to know more specifically what they're doing, look at James 3, 15. James is talking here about wisdom. Very practical wisdom at that. And in 3, 15, 
He says, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. He's talking about demonic wisdom. But is earthly, natural, and demonic. The wisdom that permeates our world is worldly, earthly, and it fits right in with the world system. It is natural. It's the natural way people think. And it is demonic. The, the masterminds behind this system of wisdom are demons. He says over in verse uh, 16, or verse, eight, or verse 17, there's another kind of wisdom. For the, but the wisdom from above is pure, first pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable, full of good fruits. There's, basically, he says there's two kinds of wisdom in this world. There is demonic wisdom, and there is God's wisdom. God's wisdom is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. The do, demon's our wisdom is characterized by all the things that permeate our societies today. I believe demons are busy as all get out throughout the world, have always been, but different ways in different societies. In some more primitive societies, we have direct worship of, of demons and spirits and ancestors and, and all these, this idol worship and so forth. In America, well, we're too enlightened for that. So the, so the demons are very busy propagating all sorts of false isms that we don't even recognize if we're not careful. There's humanism, there's evolutionary theories, there's, there's the various philosophies, there's uh, secular psychology that is godless, there is critical race theory. Do you think many, many people in the heart of Africa are concerned about critical race theory? I, I doubt it. That's not where the demons are working in that, that society. But in our society, they are. And propagating all these false isms that permeate our world and distract our world from the truth. So powerful is this demonic wisdom. And by the way, because we are Americans and we're so enlightened, most of us don't even think about demons are involved in anything. You're wrong, according to scripture. They're so involved with all these things. And the only safeguard against it, the only one is the wisdom of God found in the word of God, inspired by the spirit of God. Without that, we are hopelessly lost in the ugly wisdom of the demonic world. That's what Satan is doing. The only remedy is his word. There's another reason, by the way, as we go back, why people don't view demons as real or a problem is that they don't know they're worshiping demons. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, on our way back. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Just one verse to show this. It says, in whose case, he's speaking of unbelievers here, in whose case the God of this world, that's the, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. Do you want to know what the devil's doing? He's blinding the minds and hearts and eyes of all the world to the glories and the splendors of Christ. So that to the extent that we do not recognize the splendor and the magnificence of Jesus Christ, to that extent, Satan is having his way in your life. And for the unbeliever, he's having his way totally. Because they don't see it. They may be religious. They may be good people. They may be, they see moral situations. But they don't see the need for Jesus Christ. Because they don't see his glory.
Satan is busy with all of that. Let's go back to our passage now. And look at uh, verse 21 as he caps this off. Chapter 10 verse 21. He says this very clearly. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Get out of the temples. You cannot go in there. You cannot identify with, with the demons and then go to church on Sunday morning and identify with Jesus Christ. There needs to be a clear break. Compromise is not accepted according to what Paul is saying here. Throughout the world right now, one of the biggest issues facing the gospel is syncretism. In primitive societies, you, and you talk to any missionary or, or Christian people in, from these countries in various parts of the world, and you'll find that, that many who will proclaim Christ, come to church on Sunday morning, sing the hymns, listen to the sermons, and go out throughout the week to the shamans and the witch doctors. And whenever they have a physical problem, they turn to those things instead of Christ. And, and, and they don't see a problem. They don't see a problem of mixing their shamanism, their witchcraft, their, their worship of spirits with Christianity. They make a blend. In America, we don't do that. In America, we compromise by blending all this w demonic wisdom that's around us into Christianity and make our own stew of Christianity. Much of Christianity today, sadly, is not pure Christianity. It is a folk Christianity, a blend of many things. There is a pure Christianity. It's found straight from the scriptures. That's where we take you week after week. That's where I hope you are going. The pure Christianity is there. It's not in mixing other things with Christianity. That's not the real deal. Our, we had a pastor's fellowship this last week where our, our guys and a few other pastors from other places come in. And we, had a, 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 we have a discussion and a talk and so forth. Then we go out to eat. And this time we went to the Golden Corral. It hasn't been open for a while. And we all went over there and decided to probably break three or four commandments and, uh, and eat there. And as we were there, everybody went over there and got their food. And it's pretty nice and good food. Everybody came back. We had about a dozen of us or so. Everybody came back with a different plate of food. They'd all picked and choose what they wanted. And it was all food. Nothing wrong with that, right? That's the kind of Christianity many people have today. I'm going to belly up to the, the, the food bar of the world and pick and choose the parts I like and bring it back to my spiritual table. That's not what we can do. And that's what Paul is saying, folks. This is exactly what he's saying. Don't you blend the stuff of the world, the thoughts of the world, the wisdom of the world, the, the worship of the world with Christianity and call it Christianity. It's not the same thing. You get out of those temples, he said, and you make a clean break. In our lives, let's get away from those things that compromise the truth of God and major on the truth of God's word. I think, if, I think Paul would like Joshua's statement in chapter 24, verse 15 of Joshua. You remember it? Joshua said toward the end of his life, Choose you yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, back in Egypt, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in which, whose land you're living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is no compromise in the Christian faith, but the Christian faith is often tempted by compromise. And that leads to a final argument, verse 22. 
he caps it off by saying, beware of the consequences of compromise. His first argument is take the fellowship with the Lord seriously. His second argument is to recognize the tragedy of compromise. And now he says, beware of the consequences of compromise. Look at verse 22. What a strange verse. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are, are, we are not stronger than he, are we? I, I think this is a strange verse. Most people just flop right over this thing. So what is he saying here? Jealousy, many believe, well, jealousy is the feeling that arises from wounded love. When someone has wounded us that we, we love, that brings about jealousy. Some believe it's the strongest emotion in the human arsenal. And so he uses that word here to speak of God being jealous for us. He wants us to follow him and to live for him. Do not provoke the Lord to jealousy. Many of you know, by the way, that Oprah Winfrey uh, left any belief she had in God. When she read verses like this, it says, God is a jealous God. And she said, I don't believe in a God like that. I'll make up my own. And she did. And a lot of people follow her wisdom today, thinking she's got something on the ball. She doesn't. Our God is a jealous God. Our God wants us to follow him alone. No other compromises, no other spirits, no other wisdom, him alone. And he says, and so it says here to them, look, if you're going to evoke God, verse 20, think about that for a moment. Are you going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Would you really directly do that? If you would, it's only because you think you have a, an, an anemic, weak, domesticated God. You have a faulty view of God. If you have that kind of view of God, you ought to come to our BTI tonight when we're going over the attributes of God. Who is God? If that's your view of God, you've got this weak caricature of God that is not true at all. To ignore the wrath of God towards sin is to flirt with absolute disaster. Paul wanted them, them to know that at Corinth. He's trying to convince his readers then to take their commitment to Christ seriously. No compromises allowed. Fundamentally, what is at stake is allegiance to Christ, our loyalty to him. Let us not flirt with the enemy. I read a story not long ago about a pastor in Haiti. I think it's a great story to close this with. This pastor told this story at his church. Haiti, you know, is a very poor country and in many ways primitive. He said there was a guy in his church, or, or that he knew of anyway, that wanted to buy a house from another person in the area. And so they negotiated over buying this property. The owner said, here's the amount of money I want. The other guy lowballed him and said, I'll give you half. And so they went back and forth, went back and forth. Finally, the guy who owned the house said, okay, I'll sell you the property for half of its value if I get to contractually leave one nail over top of the door outside of your house, one large nail that is mine. I can do anything I want to with that nail. It's always mine. It's part of the contract. Everything else is yours but that nail. That doesn't sound like a bad deal, getting a house half price for a nail. And so the guy bought the property. He didn't realize, though, that several years later, this man moved back to town. He wanted his house back. And the guy who owned the house now said, I don't want to sell you the house back. And he says, I want the house. They, they couldn't come to terms. 
And so the man who originally owned the house, who now only owned a nail, went out and found a dead dog, strapped the dog on top of, on the nail, and left it there. And the guy could do legally nothing about it. The, the smell, the putrefaction of that animal became so strong that the guy gave up and sold him back the house. And the Haitian pastor said this, if we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unfit for Christian habitation. What a powerful illustration. You leave one peg, one nail, for the devil to get into your life, he will hang the most rotten garbage he can find and ruin your walk with Jesus Christ. May we take that seriously. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this complicated passage that I trust has been helpful to the folks today as we looked at, at it. Lord, uh, you, want, you want absolute allegiance from us. And we know, Lord, we are, none of us are perfect in, in that as much as we want to be. But Lord, may that be our heart's desire. May we seek with all of our being to, uh, to follow you in purity and in truth. And, for, and we pray for your strength to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.